On episode 213 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll hear an exclusive interview with New York Times correspondent Christopher Clary on the long run and beautiful game of Roger Federer. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. And I'm really excited to bring this one to you because it is a very interesting insight into the career of the legend Roger Federer. And we have Christopher Clary, who is a New York Times correspondent and a top international sports writer. And he is the author of The Master, The Long Run, and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer, which just came out yesterday, uh, one day before this podcast has been published. And uh, I'm really excited for you all to check it out. And you should definitely go to the show notes because there I have a link that you can click and get the book. I was privileged enough to get an advanced copy and uh, I started reading it a while back and could not put it down because there were just so many amazing stories, whether or not you're a Roger Federer fan. And one thing that I told Christopher that you'll hear later on is that I didn't expect to learn so much as I did by reading the book because often these types of books you expect to be entertained and you know perhaps moved emotionally, but Christopher also presents a lot of great information for us players who want to improve because you get in a, a glimpse into how Roger developed in his early years and the type of training that he was exposed to that was uh, novel at the time and uh, the choices that he made that really highly impacted his career and who he worked with, who he surrounded himself with. So just an amazing book and a ton of detail, uh, just so detailed. Uh, Chris t- just talked to so many people about Roger and, you know, obviously details the times when he interviewed Roger uh, on his own. So one to one. So I really, really highly encourage you to check out this book and big shout out to to the publisher for making this interview happen. So uh, with that, I am sure you're excited by now to listen to it. So uh, without further ado, here is my interview with Christopher Clary on Roger Federer. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. And I'm really, really excited to talk to Christopher Clary, who has written a fantastic book called The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. Uh, I was privileged enough to be sent an advanced copy, and I can tell you that it's been a fantastic, very insightful read. And, you know, one thing about this book, Chris, is that uh, it, it also teaches you a lot. You know, sometimes when you get these types of books, you just expect to be entertained, but there's so much information that, you know, amateur tennis players like myself and the audience can even uh, use to improve themselves on. So I really want to thank you for this amazing book, and uh, thanks for coming on to the podcast as well. Hey, that means a lot to hear that from you. I appreciate that, especially if you're a player. And, you know, it's uh, my goal with a book. I'm not sure I achieved it, but my goal was that it would be a book that tennis nerds like you and me could pick up 
and read and get something out of, but also that it would appeal to a general audience that was interested in how you became a champion and and how you managed all that and sort of the human side of it. So I'm hoping that it, it managed to get to both of those uh, audiences. So we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of amazing, amazing insights from, you know, his fitness development and kind of a revolutionary, um, you know, training that uh, Fetter's um, trainer gave him to, you know, what he did mentally to, to stabilize himself, which we'll get into all this stuff. So, um, but just curious to, to hear, uh, and I'm sure the audience is as well, you know, what your general interactions were like with Roger, when talking to him for, for the book and for, you know, other pieces as well, uh, how he was like. Well, you know, basically the idea of the book was I wanted to um, dig into his process, but I also had had so much access to him over the years through the New York Times and the International Herald Tribune, the, the two papers that I've written for, for, you know, 30 years or so. And um, so really the book is based on those interviews in terms of him. Um, he didn't cooperate with the book. He's never cooperated with the book yet. He definitely um, knew I was doing it and, you know, didn't, didn't stop me from talking to people or, or uh, allowing me to do the research I needed to do, but he didn't, as a New York times writer, I'm actually not allowed to do a book with somebody. Right. So it's an independent project, but it's based on a lot of access to him. I think we, I don't, I never counted the exact number, but I know I did over 20 interviews with him over 20 years, basically. And I've interviewed everybody's, you know, it's, you know, Merca, even his wife who doesn't give interviews and hasn't for years and years, I interviewed her, you know, during the early years. So I, I've had access to everybody at some time or another. And for the book itself, what I really wanted to do was go back and talk to his rivals, um, his contemporary rivals and his older rivals, people like Nadal and Djokovic, and also guys like Andy Roddick, who I thought was great, you know, for the book. So, you know, insightful and funny as he can be. Marat Safin, James Blake, people like that from the past, and really get their perspective on him now with some, you know, time in the rearview mirror. And I wanted to talk to people that were, you know, worked with him very closely, people like Paul Anacone, Peter Lundgren, Jose Higueras, all who coached him. I've had a lot of access to Severin Luthi over the years. And then also people like Pierre Paganini, who you already mentioned, you know, his fitness trainer, who was so important for him and remains so, and I think is one of the big keys to his longevity. So I went back to all these people and I did, I think, over 80 interviews for the book specifically. And that was really, for me, the best part of the process was to go back and hear what they thought now, looking at this career, why it worked out the way it did. And to really dig back into, you know, things that I had forgotten or never knew, which was really his origin story and how he came about and how, you know, how he was able to um, take this amazing talent and channel it and uh, and become a real rock physically and and to a large degree mentally as well so that was really what all about process and about the people who played him coached him and helped him and i wanted to get inside their heads a lot and so that's really the focus of the book fantastic yeah you definitely did a great job with that and in terms of the the whole process i guess from soup to nuts um how, how many years would you say this took uh this project for the book? <laughs> that's a good question yeah, I, I wrote about that in the acknowledgement section. That's the question that I've heard a lot from people since I finished it. I mean, the, the short answer is it took a year, I'd say, a little bit over a year, you know, from uh, getting the proposal approved by uh, 12, which is the American publisher. And um, John Murray also bought part of the rights from the UK. And then doing the research, the 80 plus interviews and about six months of writing. But actually, you know, if you think about it, the book couldn't have been written without the experiences of the past. So really, it was 20 plus years in the making. It my first real time watching Roger play, um, I kind of had a peripheral 
sense of him at the Wimbledon Juniors when he won that in 1998. I maybe saw him play a little bit then, but I really watched the first whole match I watched him play was um, 1999 French Open against Patrick Rafter, first round, Suzanne Longland Court. That was his uh, his Grand Slam debut. So that's where I started. And after that, after watching him play there, an agent, I've actually forgotten who it was at, at this stage, but an agent told me I should go out and watch this guy, Wimbledon junior champion. Obviously, that was a good recommendation, but he said, this guy is going to be special. And I don't even represent him. So you can trust me, basically, was what he was saying. And so I said, I'll go out and watch. Yeah, I want to see him. And I stayed for the whole match. And and I'm really glad I did because now it's fun the way things worked out. But I, so it's, I'd say 20 plus years in the making, really. Awesome. And then I, I'm trying to remember, I, I've written so many notes on, on your book. And was it when you saw him play in Davis Cup for this versus USA in 2001 that you realized he'd be future number one? Or was it earlier than that? And what was yeah. it that made you think that? I've only had two, I've only had two men's players I've watched at an early stage of their career. And I was just convinced it's because the way they fit in the mind's eye and the way their games fit and just looking at what they were doing to people who, uh, whose games I knew, I was convinced they'd be number one. One was Murat Safin when he broke through at the French Open and played so well against uh, experienced players like Agassi and, um, and Roger at the first round of the Davis Cup 2001 in his home city of Basel in Switzerland. The USA went to play him. Wasn't a full strength USA team, but it was a good team. It was Todd Martin, Jan Michael Gamble. I think um, Justin Gimbelstab, I believe, was playing doubles then. And Patrick McEnroe, I think, was in his first match ever as the U.S. Davis Cup captain. So they went in with a pretty strong team. And Roger just dismantled the U.S. and basically won that tie single-handedly. Won all three rubbers. And I just watched him play from the press seats. And I remember just thinking, this guy's going to win Wimbledon for sure multiple times. And I, I don't, I don't, I'm not somebody who's like that in general. I'm not somebody who gets a lot of uh, premonitions like that. But it was just clear to me watching him flow around the court, even though it wasn't grass, that his game was just perfect for grass. He's had this look of everywhere in the court. He flowed. He was able to uh, move forward with, you know, real effortless half volleys, volleys, angles, drop shots everywhere. So he just looked perfect for grass. And I just felt like his game was the number one's game. It just, I think he was taking it to a new level because of all things he could do in different parts of the court. And I guess with Saf and looking back on that, I think the reason I felt that was because he had just this two-handed backhand that was just next level. And that shots that guys were used to hitting that were safe against most guys against Murat suddenly were not safe. And so he was a game changer sort of thing. And Roger, just with his all-court ease and his all-court flow, that to me was the next gear for tennis. And that's what I could see. Gotcha, Chris. So fascinating. And um, you do talk about uh, his relationship with Tiger Woods a bit later on. And I'm wondering, you know, because Federer played several sports when he was young. I think his um, first love uh, might have been soccer. Um, and so I'm wondering, uh, you know, contrasting it with Tiger Woods. And there's a great book uh, called Range by I think David Epstein, where, yeah, they contrast both or he contrasts both uh, athletes. Do you think Federer would have been as good uh, of a tennis player if he didn't play other sports? Yeah, I think it comes down to personality type a lot with that. And I, I, I read David's book, too, especially the, the chapters that related to this before I started researching my book. It's interesting. I, I make a point in the book about this, actually, that I think both systems can work. I, I think I respect David's research a lot. And I think he's right, probably in terms of mental health, <laughs> probably your body's long term sustainability. I think range is a good thing. And I think maybe Roger's longevity applies to that. But then also, you see stories, you know, like uh, where there's really an obsessive focus on one sport, someone like Maria Sharapova, for example, 
who I don't thankfully played in any other sports. She was a tennis player from start to finish. That's all she really did. And um, obviously trained on the side. And she still became a champion, you know, a number one and multiple Grand Slam champion. Body broke down. Maybe there's some connection there. But in terms of Roger, I think knowing his personality, one of the things that really defines him is his need for variety and his need for novelty. Something he talks about. And I think if you look at the whole arc of his life and his career, I think that's very evident. And he knows that about himself. So I don't think he's the kind of guy who could have been, you know, monoculture, monofocused on the sport. I think he, I think he needed that variety. And in some ways, I think he might even still need it. I don't think he does a lot of other sports now, but I know just the way he trains with Paganini, there's a lot of variety and intentional variety in what he does. So I think it was very helpful for his personality type to have uh, the multiple sports. And it wasn't just uh, soccer. It was, you know, you played a lot of, played some squash. You played, you know, table tennis played basketball, other sports that I, I think are also in the mix there. So he was always messing around with balls. That's what he's always said he liked. And he skied with his family when he was young too and hiked. So I think he needed that to be fresh enough to uh, embrace the tennis day to day. And he really focused on it big time from about the age of 14. Uh, and that became really his main, main focus. I think it was very helpful to him. And I think we always admire his, his flow around the court and his, uh, his ability to make difficult things look easy in his natural grace. I think all that multiple sport activity really helped in that coordination and helped him with that uh, ability to, uh, to be, um, I'd say, spontaneous in his movements and spontaneous in his reactions. Yeah, Chris, and speaking of the variety that, that uh, Roger needed, uh, it's interesting to, to, to read that. Um, I'm trying to remember if it was Ikubens or Etienne, but it seemed like the whole staff would just tailor the programs to Roger and, and you know, in an effort to give him the variety that he needed. I mean, do you think that there was any uh, backlash or anything like that from the other kids? Like, do you think they kind of viewed it as, oh, you know, Roger's dictating what they're like, how they're um, training us here or anything like that? I didn't get I didn't get a sense of that. I mean, I didn't obviously talk to everybody who was training in Ecublon. Uh, You're talking about the uh, the Swiss National Training Center, right? You know where where he went when he was uh, when he was uh, in, in his teens. I think there could have been, but I'm not sure that the coaches were as open and clear about their intentions there as maybe they are now. Looking back on it, I don't know how much they told everybody, "Hey, we're doing this for Roger. We're going to make make this uh, very creative and and varied just to make him happy." I'm not sure that was evident. Is it? To, as it is to them now. I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. But I think if you're an athlete and you're an aspiring tennis player, that's probably a pretty fun way to do it. It's better than just being super focused on just one thing. Obviously, some personality types will thrive in that. But I, I think the Roger rules, if you want to call them that, probably benefited more than just Roger in some respects too. Yeah, definitely. And so I guess, could you kind of go uh, deeper into... Um... I wrote a quote down here and I can't remember if you said it or somebody else, but the quote was, if Roger had been examined as a youngster, he might've been diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so that was a great one, but um, yeah, just talk about, you know, how he was as a teenager and uh, any interesting stories you might want to bring up. Well, I think, you know, it's more talking to some of the early coaches about him, obviously the, the sad thing, um, and maybe we'll talk about him later, but Peter Carter, his, Australian coach would be the ultimate guy to interview about him now at this stage, but he sadly passed. So one of the biggest influences on Roger's career is no longer there to talk about him and explain that. But I, I know that, that Peter sensed so much talent in him from talking to people who knew Peter and sensed all this incredible nervous energy in Roger and just this sort of, you know, almost like it was boiling out of his body, all these 
this energy and you know, there was a bit of mischief in there too. He has a, definitely a, a prankish side and a sense of humor where, you know, he played play tricks on people and loves to laugh, loves to joke around did from an early age. But it was just a, a lot of nervous energy. And I remember there was a guy named a coach named Christoph Freiss, who was a, a big part of the early part of the book. And he was running the uh, national training center, the tennis side of it in Ecu Blanc, which is on, um, you know, uh, near Lausanne in Switzerland and it's French speaking. And Roger went there without speaking French. So it was a very difficult situation for him as a young person at, you know, age 14 to have to go in there and, and deal with not being part of the local culture, not understanding what was going on. It took him you know, a better part of a year to get conversant in the language. So I think that was hard for him. So maybe he was in a more physical mode already because he couldn't express himself fully, but Christoph Reis, who was running a lot of the practices and, and watching Roger's progress would talk about just having a hard time getting Roger to sit still long enough to, to look him in the eye and listen to what he was saying. He would sort of be trying to get, get his point across to him and he'd see Roger looking at him and, and sort of, he couldn't keep his, his gaze for very long because he could just sense he was sort of almost bubbling over with this nervous energy. And so when I, when I make the, was kind of a half joke about the ADD situation, it's also because I think he really had a hard time, you know, just sitting still and focusing on the task at hand. I think that's probably why he wasn't terribly academic either. I think he was somebody who had a hard time in the classroom, sitting still, focusing on something. He wanted to be out and physically active and just on the move, doing it, expressing his gift. And so I think it took a long time uh, for that to be manageable for a lot of the coaches that worked with them. And I think there's a story in the book, which is a great one, of him and Coublon early in the early years. And he's coming to practice. He's finished his classes and he's coming into practice and the older guys are practicing. And he's just hitting the ball against this container. I think it was a metal container or it's making a huge amount of noise. Just bang, bang, bang. And Christoph Freist, you know, the head coach says, Roger, stop it. And so Roger stops for a little while. And I think it starts to blood starts to boil again. He gets nervous, starts to hit against the wall again. Bang, bang, bang. Roger, stop. Roger, stop. And basically it's kind of agreed that if he starts, starts it again, they're going to carry him away. So sure enough, Roger starts again the whole pack of players and everybody kind of descends on Roger, carries him up to the shower stall upstairs. Like they're going to make him all wet and douse him. It's unclear whether they actually did or not, but that gives you an example of what kind of nervous energy Roger had at that stage and just how hard it was for him to kind of control what he was doing. He wanted to, he wanted to play. He wanted to be out there. Didn't want to sit around talking tactics too much at that stage. Obviously it changed. So I think those are, those are pretty key indicators of the type of personality. And if you look at it, What's carried him to age 40, that he turned 40 quite recently, maybe it's that nervous energy and all that bubbling up is what's helped carry him through. You don't see it so much anymore. It's been years since you really see that kind of thing in him. He's contained it so much, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, whatever it was, that core energy that's in him, I think has been very important to his longevity too. Yeah, I agree with that, Chris. And yeah, a lot of great stories, you know, hiding tree houses, slicing a curtain. Uh, yeah, he'll <laughs> yeah, to, to, to listen about, uh, to, to read these things. So tell me why Federer switched his dentist, um, you know, when he was a teenager and the importance about uh, of surrounding yourself with uh, the right people. Yeah, that's a good story, too. That's one of my favorite stories in the book, actually. He told me that one at one of our last interviews, actually most recent interviews. I think he was also trying to explain why he's lasted a long time. Um, and we talked about this. And the story is basically that when he turned pro or has decided to kind of become a full-time tennis player at age 16 and, you know, basically hire his own people and, 
and start to kind of really head out there and, and do what he needed to do. He, um, 16 or 17, I forgot the exact age, but he went to Basel to his longtime dentist and basically, yeah, like somebody's known you for a long time since your kid guy was asking him, I think while he was working on Roger's mouth, actually, as Roger says, it's not the easiest place to have a conversation, but he said, so what are you up to now? And Roger basically told him that I'm just, I'm playing tennis. I'm doing tennis. And the guy said, is that all, is that all you're doing? I mean, come on, what else are you doing? And Roger goes, no, I'm, I'm really just playing tennis. That's all I'm doing. So maybe for an American or, or French person or somebody else, it wouldn't be such a, an issue, but for the Swiss who are conservative and very education driven and, and very uh, sort of conventional success oriented. I think it was a hard thing for them to manage for a lot of people to, to realize that Roger was going to be a full-time tennis player. And basically the very telling thing was he decided never to go back to the guy. He walked out once, I guess, I guess he got his work done, <laughs> hopefully he finished it. And then he left and he, he said, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to go back. I'm, uh, I'm changing tennis because he wanted in his words, somebody with positive energy, somebody who's going to you know, believe in his project, somebody who was going to encourage him. And he just didn't want to be around negative energy. And I think that's something that he's uh, followed throughout his career. I, I kind of, I've called it like a negative energy detector. He's somebody who doesn't want to uh, surround himself with that. It drains his energy. I don't think he minds constructive criticism. Maybe I think he's probably more open to that now than he might, might've been in his very early years. He might've wanted to hear more, Rah rah, and then I think over time he realized the value of the criticism when it comes from the right place. But he did not want negative people, and he wanted people who uh, would sort of allow him to uh, dream his dreams and dream big, and and not get in the way of that. So the dentist story I think exemplifies all of that, and I imagine there were other people like that along the way, um, but that one is certainly very telling. Yeah, for sure. And you talk about this, uh, you know, after that story too, but um, I mean, how do you figure out, you know, when advice is like uh, being realistic versus, you know, being negative? Like, how do you find that proper team to, that, that has the right sort of attitude for you? Well, I mean, your, your question is a good one. I think what's interesting is that you got to have a little bit of perspective on this. Roger's looking at it through his lens the wisdom that he's acquired. And I do think there are a lot of lessons you can learn from Roger for all of us. But it, you also got to realize this guy is an ethereal, otherworldly talent in tennis. So things that he did might've worked anyway because he was so good. And so that some of the things that he tried to do uh, that he saw that worked for him might not have worked for somebody else because they just wouldn't have been good enough. And maybe other guys might need someone to break them down and make them really realize that they, their game isn't in the right direction or they don't really have what it takes, but he clearly did have what it took. So I think it could be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there too. But I, what I think you can get out of it though, is it is very important. I think if you're going to go off on a path uh, as a young person like that and take a big risk, he had his family behind him. Obviously he could have gone back to school. He left school at 16. So he could have gone back to school in Switzerland. And that was kind of the pact he made with his parents, especially his father that he, he didn't reach a, a certain level in several years, he'd have to go back and go to school. Obviously, it worked out well for him. But I think the important thing is you need to really surround yourself with quality people. And you have to give those quality people enough time to do the job properly and accept that you're going to have learning curves in terms of how it's going to work for you um, with your group. And that as a group, you can evolve. But you got to have, have really smart I think wise choices in terms of who's 
the right person for you. Obviously, it helps when you're a great talent. People are going to gravitate to you. Some of the people who came to um, to um, the National Training Center in Bien, which is where he went after AQ Blanc, came there because they knew Roger was going to be there. These are coaches like Peter Lundgren, who coached him later on, and uh, a guy named Paul Dorachenko, who was a fitness trainer, who also had worked with Sergi Bruguera, former French Open champion, and a lot of other players down the road. They came knowing that Roger was going to be involved, and that was very interesting to them. So talent also attracts talent. So you might have people of more knowledge and better quality. They're going to gravitate to you because they know you have a big upside. But I think for him, he made a lot of good choices through the years. He really did. And maybe he was advised by his parents early on or people he trusted, like Peter Carter. But he seemed to have a good instinct about, about people and, and about the ones he should trust. Yeah, definitely. A lot of good choices. Um, you know, some you know, uh, good timing and fortunes. And um, yeah, it's obviously been an incredible career. Um, I just want to go back to uh, what I mentioned in the beginning uh, of the interview, which is the influence of a fitness trainer. I forgot his first name already, but Paganini and just kind of the different type of style of training he did and how that has contributed to Federer's, uh, you know, footwork and fitness and longevity in the game. Yeah, it's Pierre Paganini is his name, and and he uh, he was a, a track athlete, decathlon guy, trained with one of the um, one of the better athletics trainers in in Switzerland, and he also was a guy who was very interested in coaching soccer initially, and sort of gravitated to tennis a bit by default as time went on. But I think Pierre, from having interviewed him a few times at length, is a very deep person, deep thinker pretty philosophical. You get kind of goosebumps talking to him uh, because he just has this very measured way and, and a very uh, inspiring way to speak. It's not like, Hey, let's go out and run some you know, push-ups. It's, it's, it's much more thoughtful than that. I don't know how he is day to day with Roger, but when you're talking to him, it, it's, it's very thoughtful and intentional. And I, I think he brought that to bear with Roger and Roger was not, was not the first guy he worked with. He worked with Mark Rosé, who was, the leading Swiss player when Roger emerged, he was top 10 guy, won the gold medal at the Olympics by surprise in Barcelona in 1992 in singles. And he was a pretty big early influence on Roger's career. But Paganini worked with Rosé. And I don't know, you know, I, I mean, you got a pretty tennis nerd um, listening group, I imagine. So the Maleva sisters, there were three of them, all top 10 players, kind of the Williams sisters before the Williams sisters from Bulgaria. and. Um, one of them, the oldest, Manuela, married a Swiss coach and was also training in Ecu Blanc, which is where Pierre Paganini was. And he worked with Manuela Maleva as well and helped her really hit a new level. But I think Pierre's thing was, I'm going to explain to you why I'm doing this. I'm going to get you to buy into it. And then I'm going to surprise you a lot. I'm going to give you variety, different things. So your body is challenged. But above all, what I'm going to do is everything that I do is going to relate directly to what you need in terms of fitness. Everything that you're going to do, be it lifting, be it sprinting, be it any kind of movement, is going to have a direct correlation to your sport. And that would be tennis in the case of Roger, obviously, and Malevas and Rose. And so I, I know that's sort of the way things are done now, more and more. I don't, I'm not so sure that when Paganini came along and you talked to players from that era, that wasn't the way it was always done then. So whether Pierre was the ultimate innovator, I don't know, but Pierre certainly brought that to bear in terms of Roger and it was a perfect fit. 
And I think he was, he did everything he did was coordination and movement. That was his big focus. So if you're going to be sprinting, you're going to be doing it while catching a ball, or you're going to be doing it while trying to solve a mental problem, or you're going to be doing explosive endurance, which is sort of his term for it, where you're trying to short bursts, a lot of plyometrics, you know, jumping, explosive movements, a lot of um, quick cardio, get your heart rate up, stop, quick cardio again, because that's what tennis is, right? It's a stop and start game. And there's a lot of long breaks in there. So as, as Pierre would put it, you're not going to be, you're not sprinting for three hours in a three hour tennis match. You're sprinting for short bursts within that three hours. And so you really should train ideally to be just in that mode. And I think there was still in the eighties and early nineties, this idea of let's go for a run or, you know, let's lift some heavy weights or things like that, that really don't directly apply to tennis all that much. You can, you can argue that that philosophy worked pretty well for Gil Reyes and Andre Agassi. I mean, those guys pumped some serious iron. I think it was also a psychological benefit for Andre as well, you know, with heavy weights and setting personal records and just a really solid body core, you know, big pecs and all those kinds of things. I personally listening to Pierre and other people don't really see the value in that, but it worked for Andre and he had a long career. So you have to kind of tailor it to your people. But in Roger's case, almost everything that he did from a pretty early age, because he met Pierre quite young and worked with them from the beginning of his pro career, really. Uh, was done with that intentionality and that very specific tennis focus. And again, why did he get to 40? I'm sure that's, that definitely has played a big role. And, and he said as much, Pierre's influence on him and his ability not to burn him out, to know with their communication being what it was and their trust being what it was, knowing where the limits were and where he could push, should push. And I think they had a very open feedback loop between them where you know, Roger would almost sense what Pierre might be thinking and let him know that that wasn't going to work that day. And, and Pierre would instinctively know what Roger could handle at any given moment. But there was always that element of surprise. And if you look at Roger's career all the way through from a very young age till now, the variety is very important to his mental freshness. And, um, and Pierre got that and had gave him that. And, and yeah, I mean, it's honestly very inspiring to talk to Pierre. And I think that's, Another reason why it's lasted so long in the relationship because the guy is just a very interesting human. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fantastic. Uh, again, you know, going back to this incredible team that uh, Federer is able to, uh, to, you know, 
uh, be a part of. So um, in terms of, uh, you know, the mental game now, it, it, I think it was looked down upon at the time to to work with a sports psychologist. But but uh, Roger and I keep interchanging Roger and Federer, but uh, Roger did work with a sports psychologist. So um, talk about that influence and and how it was looked upon and, and any other insights uh, on that part of his um, journey. Yeah, that's a really interesting part of of his career, and not a lot of people know about that. I mean, it's, and I honestly, he is he has talked very little about it through the years. Uh, it's not something he brings up a whole lot spontaneously. I don't think he feels any sort of regret or sense of shame about it, but I think it's just I think he takes a lot of pride in his mental strength and his ability to overcome problems and issues. And I think he he didn't want to be dependent on anything, but I think at that time uh, it was when he had his temper issues and his problems controlling his emotions as a young player in his teens. And there was a sense that uh, he just was having a hard time channeling things and, and controlling things. And he wasn't able to express his best tennis or, or even be very happy on the court at all because he was just so tied in as so many players are in the sport, you know, which drives us, can drive us all nuts. In his case, it was, it was making him miserable a lot of the time on the court, I think in terms of his ability to, uh, to manage the emotions and the expectations that he had for himself. So I think Peter Carter, his boyhood coach, and others who were involved at the time at the National Training Center in, in Biel. I'll use the term Biel because it's actually called Biel Bien is the term. It's a, it's a bilingual city, French and German. So it's actually the official name is Biel Bien, believe it or not. But Biel is, uh, Biel is the German term, so we'll use that. But so in Biel, basically, uh, the team there decided, it also included a guy I'm sure you've heard of Sven Groneveld, who a uh, great Dutch coach who's worked with a lot of top players, including Sharapova and uh, Mary Pierce and Rosetsky, and is now going to coach Bianca Andrescu of Canada, which is an interesting decision. But Sven was involved as a tennis director in the Swiss Federation when Roger came to Beale. And um, Sven told me that the feeling was Roger needed some help from the outside. And, and I don't think his parents were able to give him what he needed in terms of the kind of peace of mind and, and the tools basically to be able to handle the, the emotions and try to get on the road to controlling his temper and, and manage those things. So they basically, uh, you know, from what I understand, they were you know, reading a newspaper article and came across this young guy named Christian Marcoli, who used to be a, a soccer player with, and a very good one and a striker with um, FC Basel, which is a, one of the best Swiss clubs based in Rogers hometown, one he would have watched play hundreds of times as a kid in person on TV. And he's still a big fan. And so this guy, because he was very young and his career had ended because of an injury. I think he uh, seemed to Peter Carter and to Rogers, the kind of guy that he'd be able to relate to. And he was just starting his sports psychology practice. And at the time there really weren't that many performance psychologists or sports psychologists in Switzerland at all. He might've been one of the very first Christian Marcoli. And again, I interviewed him for the book and I won't go into all of it here because the book will make it more interesting too. But I, I think, again, a very interesting, inspiring person, much like Pierre, really. I talked to, to Christian for an hour and a half uh, for the book. And he was some one of those guys who's got a great perspective on things through his own experiences and difficulties. And, and a lot of what he decided to do as in his practice was to do for our athletes the things that he didn't get done for him when he was an athlete. That was his motivation. He wanted to give them a platform and a structure to be able to express their best 
on the field or on the court or whatever it was. So I think even though he was quite young, I think that Roger was able to come across him. And they also from Basel, you know, Roger's hometown, the guy speaking his language, Swiss German, which is his most comfortable language of them all. And I think he was able to not solve the problem for Roger. They worked together for a couple of years pretty regularly. I think he gave him tools to manage the on-court stress. Stuff is direct as what you do with your eyes when you're on the court. You don't let your gaze stray away. You keep them focused on the space in front of you until the point begins in order to help your concentration, breathing techniques, things like that. And then a lot of the things they worked on, quite honest, or have remained, quite honestly, have remained confidential. Roger didn't want Marcoli talking about it. Uh, Marcoli has respected that. Um, and when we talked for the book, he kept, you know, to his credit, saying a lot, this is still confidential. I'm not going to, I'm not going to breach that confidentiality, but he talked in general terms. And I think he just, um, he could tell that Roger had very, very high expectations for himself and, and very big dreams as a tennis player. And the idea was to help him express his, his get on the road to expressing his best tennis. And they didn't get all the way there because Roger still had some <laughs> emotional temperamental problems after they stopped working together in his late teens. But I think he did give him a, a good platform and helped him quite a bit. Yeah, for sure. And Christian, uh, it was nice that he said that, you know, his goal was to not have the, the players, you know, have to rely on him all the time and to, to at some point have to say, you know, goodbye, essentially. Um, yeah. so I found that very, very honorable, <laughs> you know. Um, That's true. But- I don't know how many sports psychologists, sports psychologists take that approach. I mean, obviously you're giving away your paycheck. But I think he had a good long-term vision and he's had a lot of success. I mean, Roger was a short time in his career at the beginning, but he's also worked with um, some of the best Swiss athletes, Olympic uh, champions in skiing and um, their national team goalkeeper. Obviously had a pretty good Euro recently. I'm not remembering all the names here, but the uh, these guys are, are top, top Swiss athletes and he's, he's played a big role with them and golfers as well. So I think he's taken his method and had a lot of success with it. Written a number of books too. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Um, Roger's ascension and, and improvement, uh, and you know, one other quote that I, I'm going to bring up is from, as you mentioned, Mark Rosset. So he said, "What fascinated me about Roger is he manages to live in the present and has a great ability to take things as they come. He lives in the moment, experiences it fully, takes pleasure in it, and then finishes it and moves on to the next thing." So. How has Roger, how does he do that? <laughs> I mean, that's really hard. And I, uh, you know, I wish I could do that all the time, but um, what mm. enabled him to become like this? Well, just to your point about what you said about yourself, that to me, as a you know, longtime journalist who's covered him for a long time, I didn't realize that until I started writing the book. There's, there are a number of takeaways for me from this process that could apply to me or to people I care about and things that you can learn from. And this is an aspirational thing from watching him operate that I would like to incorporate into my own life. And, and I'm trying to do, because I feel like it's, that is the thing, especially in this era of, you know, of this thing, basically, we are just so challenged in our focus and concentration and distractions. And really, having spent a lot of time around Roger as a journalist, the guy's there with you. I can't say how many times I've done interviews with other athletes when the phone's been going off or their head's twisting around, or you can sense their leg getting jittery because they got something else they're thinking about, or they want to get someplace. He is not like that at all. He is looking at you. He is focused on your conversation and in a very relaxed manner. None of this stuff, none of this, it's open 
to the conversation, open to the moment. And I never felt rushed talking to them. And I can tell you, I've felt rushed in plenty of interviews. I've interviewed thousands of athletes in many different sports over the years. And he really stands out. There are others like him, but he seems like, I don't know, I'd like to know this. If it was somebody along the way who counseled him early on and said, hey, you're doing it, do it right. Maybe it was his parents as a form of politeness and a form of focus, but it's, it's a real hallmark of his. And I guess how he does it, I like to say the guy, I think I use this line in the book too, and I, and I believe this. I feel like it's planned spontaneity, as weird as that might sound. It's an oxymoron, but it, I think it is. I think, I think he sort of, he knows that he wants to be in the moment. He wants to give things his full attention. And the only way to do that is to know when he wants to be that way, when he has to be that way, and sort of take care of the things that might be distractions and have his life organized in such a way that when he's in front of something, whether it's a sponsor dinner, whether it's a match, whether it's a practice session, whether it's a journalist, he's there. And that takes planning and self-control. And I think that's the key. And that, and he's Swiss South African. We can't forget that. He's not just Swiss. I mean, his mom's South African. He has kind of, I would say, kind of American qualities as well in terms of that sort of exuberance and extroverted qualities that he has. But he also has a very rigorous, I think, Swiss side to him as well, despite that crazy bubbling energy. There's also inside there a, a structured person. And I think both those things have played a role in, in what he's been able to do. But I would call it, yeah, I'd planned spontaneity. So that's kind of the mantra I've taken out of uh, writing this book is that, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to aim for the same thing. When I'm doing it, whatever it is, I want to try to think a bit like he does and that that thing is really all that matters at the moment. And the other stuff, when I'm done with this, I'll move on to this. So I think that's really a takeaway for all of us from what his success has brought. Extremely important, Chris. Yeah, thanks for uh, discussing that in detail. Um, so uh, Roger is obviously uh, in the beginning of his career, a lot of a lot of pressure from you know choosing which coach he would <laughs> pick to uh, to uh, some setbacks. So um, he did have uh, a few streaks of of several first uh, round losses in a row. So how was he able to bounce back from that to then eventually, obviously, you know, reach the pinnacle? Yeah, he had he had some tough stretches there. I mean, uh, people tend to think about 2001, you know, Wimbledon fourth round, Pete Sampras, huge winning streak, you know, seven time champ at Wimbledon, and and Roger beating him in five sets in that classic match. As sort of that's when it all began, and it all started to roll for Roger. That's not really the way it went. There was a uh, quite a bit of difficulty and 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 problem managing his game, making the right shot selections and controlling his emotions, finding the consistency. And um, it took him, it took him quite a while. One of the key elements in that maturation process was obviously Peter Carter's death, which happened in, in the summer Northern hemisphere, summer of 2002, he was killed in a, in a Jeep accident or, or a car accident in South Africa when he was on safari down there uh, near Kruger national park. And a trip he took as a honeymoon on the Federer's recommendation. So I think when Peter died, Roger had taken on Peter Lundgren, another Peter, as his coach in his early years on the pro circuit. It was a very difficult decision not to work with Peter Carter, who'd been in kind of a journeyman Australian pro, by all accounts, a great guy and a, and a very great tennis mind in a lot of ways and really shaped Roger's game. 
but Peter's death changed so many things um, for Roger. And I think even though when he died in 2002, I don't think that Roger's game immediately benefited. Of course, there was a lot to absorb and, and, uh, and deal with, but I think that was the key moment that made him the player he became. I think because of Peter's wasn't a sacrifice, Peter, nobody, he didn't plan to die and was a, was a horrible tragedy in every respect. But I think it gave Roger this sense that he needed to honor Peter's memory and he needed to do justice to the talent that Peter always saw in him. And um, obviously intense emotions because of the way it all played out and the way it happened. And the fact that they weren't, weren't working directly together when he, when he died. And I, I imagine, you know, deep down Roger would have thought their paths would cross again in some coaching role down the road. That was never going to happen. So I think with all his human qualities, Roger's a very sensitive person and a very empathetic person. And I think he, he set out from the moment Peter died or pretty soon afterward to uh, commit his talent and his, to get the most out of it kind of in honor of Peter. It might've happened anyway. I personally don't think it would have to the same degree. I think that was really a key thing. Uh, it's, it's tragic that Peter never got to see him play his best, but I don't know if Roger would have played his best with, if Peter had spun around. It's just a really paradoxical thing, but I feel like uh, that gave him, he kind of grew up from that in a way. And it gave him the, uh, I'd call it a mission statement in a way. And he wrote to people who knew Peter, Peter Carter. There's a part in the book there, Peter Smith, who coached Peter Carter in his youth. And uh, Rod wrote an email shortly after Peter Carter's death. I said, hey, I want you to know I'm going to do all I can to maximize my talent in, in honor of Peter. And I think about it when I'm on the court. And, and Rogers talked about that too. And then Wimbledon, you know, 2003, after some difficulties, it all came together for him. And that from there, it just started to flow. It took a while he had to manage expectations, emotions, his game. And that was another part of the process. But the Peter Carter thing is the launching pad to the kind of consistency and incredible excellence that he showed over so long. Uh, it's incredible insight and, uh, you know, really touching to, to hear that. And yeah, it's only fitting. I mean, it, as you mentioned, such a huge influence and, you know, uh, Roger's strokes basically, or, you know, they look like Peter's. Um, so, um, yeah, that's very, very interesting and, and cool to hear. So regarding, uh, Federer and Nadal, and it's really cool that you also put a lot into, you know, researching the background of, 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 of Rafa and talking about him and everything, uh, it was very interesting. Uh, I think it was the first singles match with Nadal when Federer was number one that uh, Nadal, I guess, demolished <laughs> Federer. So, um, yeah, that was that was surprising, I guess, to a lot of people. And you talk in depth about the announcer, you know, cutting off mid-sentence. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. John Barrett is a great announcer. Yeah. John Barrett was there. Like you said, I mean, this is John Barrett who was uh, the voice of Wimbledon for BBC for many years. He's a fantastic announcer and was a great player in his own right. So he knows the game, but it was a situation where Nadal, this young teenage talent, people knew he was good, but Roger was the guy. He just emerged now as the dominant player in the game, obviously a great hardcore player. And he's coming into Miami and he's the big favorite and Nadal's coming out there to kind of get a tennis lesson, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. And, and you can hear John Barrett who's doing the commentary with Doug Adler for the ATP feed, the world feed. And John sort of saying, you know, is there a reasonable chance that, you know, Roger could be troubled by this guy today? And basically the conversation starts to be like, well, well so let's explain to you why. And then as they're talking, this point begins 
and Nadal is early in the match. And Roger just hits this inside out forehand that would normally finish off a point and Nadal's over there and, and with his lefty forehand gets to the ball and rips it back you know, twice as hard. And then another shot that should have been a winner in the rally and not rough is there and hits that and ends up winning the point with passing shots and just a barrage of things. And it was almost like the future was right there in that rally and teenage Rafa playing Roger and surprising him and then taking his best shots and turning them on his head and, and, being, and winning the rally. And then Barrett and Adler just stopped talking and they never talk about that again. <laughs> and the match plays out and, and Rafa wins and, and we probably never talked about it again, ever. You know, it was just like, there was the moment where we're going to question with this kid's talent and whether he was going to be a threat. And then suddenly the rally just proved that he was, and that was it. Obviously Rafa took a while because of injuries to, to win uh, his first French open. And, and, uh, and he lost to Roger in the Miami final the following year. So Roger had plenty of moments on hard courts in that stage, but I mean, you watch that match. I watched it for the book again. What it wasn't Roger wasn't at his best. He was coming off a little bit of an illness, I guess. You can't always tell the speed people are moving at, but Nadal's shot making and just confidence and body language was like, I'm taking this. You're not intimidating me in the least. And it's interesting because Rafa is almost five years younger than Roger, but because of Roger's timeline, Roger's not the guy that Rafa grew up watching. He watched, grew up watching Carlos Moya, who's from Mallorca, like Rafa. It was kind of his role model. He would have seen Sampras and Agassi and those kinds of guys. But Roger wasn't the dominant player when Rafa was a teenager growing up in Mallorca. His dominance kind of happened a little before Rafa emerged. So I don't think, I don't think Rafa was intimidated by anybody anyway, but it wasn't like he was watching his childhood idol out there like Roger was when he played Sampras at Wimbledon. It was a whole different dynamic. But it was just, you're watching the guy, Rafa, play, and you just champion, champion, just playing each point as he has for almost 20 years with full intensity, full intention. And if Roger didn't bring his best stuff, he wasn't winning the point. So it was, that was a real revelation to watch that match again. And there were a couple of moments like that, few moments of matches that I got to watch. Another great joy of doing this book was going back and watching a lot of the old matches that were just amazing spectacles. I mean, Hewitt-Federer matches. Hewitt's been lost in the sands of time a little bit, but some of their some of their duels were spectacular. There's a Shanghai match, the Masters, you know, the uh, Masters Cup, which is the ATP Finals now. Just a high-level tennis, amazing defense on both players' part, and then the great, the great Safin-Federer Aussie Open semifinal. Just pure pleasure to watch that match. So that Rafa Roger match was in that same sort of short list too. Yeah, Nadal not intimidated at all. You know, he he beat uh, Boya uh, in their meeting, and he uh, as a fourteen year old, I think he beat Pat Cash in like a exhibition. Uh, you know, yeah, so. yeah, 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 that's a great story. Yeah, yeah. Cash yeah. came to play Becker in an exhibition in Mallorca. Cash, former Wimbledon champion, Becker as well. Becker had a house in Mallorca, uh, and so they they were coming to do this thing at the local club. Becker couldn't play last minute, looking for a sub. So they tell Pat, you know, hey. There's this young guy on the island. It's pretty good. We use him as a fill-in. And Pat's like, sure, we'll, we'll save it. We'll give a little hit around. And he basically goes out to play, and this kid shows up. It's Rafa. I think he was 14. I think that's right. And he just, like, the first point was, like, flashy forehand, vamos, fist pump. And Pat's like, whoa, you know. <laughs> he ends up having a fight for his life against this kid. And he ends up calling his agent to, right after the match and telling him, you better, you know, Signed this kid, even unfortunately, he was already signed, but 
and telling his sponsors, get this kid. Nike was already all over it, but, but it was for Pat a revelation. It's a great story. I mean, it was just thought he'd go out there and be able to give the kid a little hit around, but Rafa wasn't having it. One of many, many great stories in the book. Uh, so kind of a two for question. Um, what are Federer's uh, thoughts, genuine thoughts on uh, on Rafa? And then maybe contrast that. I mean, if it is a contrast with uh, with Djokovic. You know, I'd love to give you the full answer on that. I, you know, in his deepest you know, personal thoughts, I can't give you those. And, and he may give me a, you know, a media journalist answer in some of these situations. My sense of it, just being around uh, those guys and, and seeing them all interact to some degree from my limited vantage point, which is still a privileged vantage point because of the access I've had to these people, I think, to some degree. I don't want to be definitive here is what I'm saying, because I don't know for sure. But my sense with Rafa is that you know, language barrier was real in the early years. I mean, Rafa's English was not very good at all. And Roger's Spanish is really not very good. So they were their communication was very limited in the early years, for sure. I love that, you know, you know, the classic video when they're both, they just start giggling and laughing and all that. I mean, Rafa's still figuring things out in the language, and but it's just hilarious and they, they make it work. I think there was, it was very tough for Roger to accept that he has, his moment had come and he'd been told he was the one for a long time and he believed it and I think he'd come to believe it. And then Rafa shows up and rocks his world. I mean, that, could, that was not easy to deal with. Mentally, and I'm sure there was a lot of, you know, difficult moments accepting that and accepting Rafa's arrival and his long running presence and some humiliating defeats like the uh, 08 French open final. So I don't know if they would have called it a friendship in the early years by any means, but I think over time through those matches, uh, much like McEnroe and Borg, really, uh, I think the fact that they shared those incredible matches, the two Wimbledon finals and the Rome final and, and, uh, and other matches, I think they realized that, Almost in a way, as a collective unit, they were stronger and more appealing and had more resonance than they did individually in some way. And I think they felt that linkage. And over time, Rafa's English got pretty good. And, and I think over time, they realized, I point this out in the book, and that was a revelation for me as I wrote it, uh, how much they have in common. They really do have a lot in common. Their backgrounds, they both you know, were soccer players, other sports, could easily have gone that direction. You know, they both come from uh, tight families, both come from multilingual backgrounds uh, as well with uh, in terms of just the Mallorcan culture and mainland Spanish culture and all that Rafa was navigating. Uh, Rafa obviously had a different background in the sense that his uncle, Miguel Angel, was a great soccer player, you know, and with, with uh, Barcelona and the nas- national team from Spain. So he had a role model in his family. He was a great athletic success. Roger didn't have that, but they have a lot of similarities in terms of how they they process things through their careers. And their their fitness trainers too are Paganini's uh, fitness fitness approach is similar to Rafa's guys' fitness approach. And and so I think there's a lot of stuff that went that they could share. And, and they realize kind of like like a time lapse photography or sort of like a photograph photograph developing in the dark room, and over time it becomes clearer and clearer what it is. I think their relationship became clearer and clearer as they came along. And I think they really, now you sense talking to both of them about each other recently, it's just an immense amount of respect. And I think it is a friendship now. Is it a close friendship like you'd have with your buddies from childhood or your, your friend you're not competitive with that you can just sit back and be 100% yourself with? No, but it's, I think it's a friendship. 
And it's and it's uh it's one of the coolest things about tennis right now is that the way those two guys get along and respect each other and yet still will try to beat each other's brains out on the court. Um Novak, I think, is a more complex thing. Novak comes from a totally different place than either of those guys. My sense from Roger was not as much in common there and more of an edge to that rivalry. He's never expressed that in clear terms to me or, or anybody else I've ever heard, but just the way he's reacted to some of the losses, some of the sort of the, the frustration that he represents, the two match point losses, both of those at the U.S. Open, the way he responded to some of that stuff. He hasn't responded to too many defeats like that in his career. I think Novak gets under his skin in a way with his game, what he can do against Roger's strengths uh, in a way that Rafa, who can do some of the same things, doesn't do. Probably because Rafa has always respected Roger openly, very much so in terms of how he talks about him. Always been deferential, almost past logic in some ways, where he's sort of talked about Roger being the greatest player in the world after he's beaten him, you know, three, two and two or whatever it is. And I remember as a journalist going, come on, Rafa, you're not kidding anybody. But that's been Rafa's approach. And he's only as good as his next match or his next point. And I think he did have a tremendous amount of respect for Roger. And he also realized that might have been the smartest approach. But I think Novak could destabilize Roger sometimes. And I think I got to him. Yeah, some interesting comments, too, from the family of uh, <laughs> Novak, which uh, you should get the book for that, too, to read. <laughs> um, but about Roger, obviously. But um, yeah. yeah. Different approach. You didn't hear the Nadal saying those kind of things for sure. <laughs> no, no, I, I haven't seen that. Chris, uh, I could talk to you about this book for, you know, 10 hours, but I know you uh, have a busy day ahead. So uh, I guess I just want to um, ask you if there's anything else you want to mention uh, about the book, anything just in general that you have the floor at this moment. Well, I, I, I'm touched that you, you brought up Rafa and Novak because I feel like you know, the book is, it's the master's name and it's, it is a better biography and a pretty detailed one, I hope. And hopefully gives you the whole, you know, cradled age 40 kind of look at him. I think his main body of work now is done. I'm not saying he won't keep playing. I, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe he doesn't even know the answer to that at the moment we're talking, but I, I, I do think his, his main achievements in tennis are, are behind him now. So I think it's a good time to have written this book for that reason. But really I, it is a book about this whole era in men's tennis, which is an exceptional, exceptional era. I don't know how old you are. You look young and vigorous, but um, definitely it's uh, I've covered tennis for 30 plus years. And I covered the Sampras Agassi, Michael Chang, Jim Courier era. Saw all that. Which is a, and I finished that up and I go, well, I'm not going to be able to top this. It's great to be having done that so soon in my career. Well, this tops it. The consistent achievement of these guys. If a guy like Andy Murray is almost a, has become almost an afterthought considering how great a player he is and how much he achieved, it tells you something about how, how good those three guys, you know, Rafa, Roger, and, and, and Novak have been. And the book really dives into that and also dives into the guys who couldn't make it, like Safin. I mean, they made it. Won two Grand Slams, hit number one briefly. Roddick winning the U.S. Open, hitting number one. But it's interesting to see the guys who came up against Roger and then later Novak and Rafa too who couldn't quite join that club and why and how they view it all. So for me, I think that's, that's the richest of the book. And I'm hoping that my, my dream would be 10 years from now, if somebody wants to know about this era, a lot about Roger, but about this era, that this book would be interesting to them still. And that's, that's kind of the, the spirit in which I wrote it. So there's a lot of, a lot of Rafa and a lot of Novak, as you mentioned in the book, more than you might expect from looking at the cover or, or looking at the thing. So I, I hope people, 
get some you know enjoyment out of that part of it too. Definitely, uh, Chris. Uh, I think uh, I feel like you should sell like many, many millions. Or <laughs> I mean, you know, I, if you're a Feder fan, you got to get this book. Uh, <laughs> even if you're a fan of you know just the men's game, or yeah, you should get this book. I mean, it's really like I said earlier. You know, very detailed. A lot of great stories. You know, a lot of chuckling along the way, like when they told Rose after he won, like the the uh, Switzerland, like the biggest tournament there, like uh, we're not sending you to the Easter Bowl because you're just not good enough. I mean, that was hilarious. But anyways, yeah, just a great book. And I highly encourage everybody to to check it out. Uh, again, uh, Christopher Clary is the author of The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. Really, uh, I really hope that you all uh, enjoy this book when you pick it up. And I really enjoyed it myself. So, uh, Chris, thanks a lot for your time. Hope to see you at a uh, live tourney one of these days or talk to you again on the podcast. And thanks so much for your time. And again, uh, kudos on the great job you did with this book. Hey, thank you for your interest. And um, those words really touched me. I appreciate it. It was really a, a big challenge to take a career as big and long as Rogers and try to, you know, boil it down to a few hundred pages, but it was, it was something I got a lot of uh, satisfaction out of at the end and learned a lot myself. So I appreciate what you said. Thanks so much. No problem. Thank you, Chris. All the best. And I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, great. All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Christopher Clary on the master, the long run and beautiful game of Roger Federer. And again, I can't recommend enough uh, Christopher's new book that just came out a day before the publication of this podcast episode, uh, so August 24th. And yes, you can pick up the book at uh, by just going to the show notes page. Uh, you can just click in your app that you're using to listen to the show or go to tennisfiles.com slash 213 or tennisfiles.com slash podcast and just click on the show notes page and you will find the link. So uh, again, that's the Master, The Long Run, and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. Definitely check it out. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would definitely appreciate it if you left a review for the Tennis Files podcast. Just do that on your app of choice that you use to listen to the show again. And let me leave you with a quote, as I often love to do at the end of the show. And this quote is from James Swanwick. And James said, when you double your rate of failure, you double your rate of success. Really love that. Highly applicable, both in Roger's career and your own career, uh, my career, everybody's. You know, the more you try different things and come out of your shell, that's when you're gonna uh, learn a lot. You know, obviously sometimes you'll fail at first, but you'll find a way to persevere. So, great quote there. All right. Well, again, thanks so much for listening. And if you want a great read, pick up the book. <laughs> pick up Christopher's book uh, on Roger Federer and. Uh, yeah, with that, I hope you have a great day, great week, and keep improving your tennis game. Uh, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is Maribon Aranshad signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.